AC Endeavors, before we get started, for a limited time, I'm bringing back the quid pro quo written review for editing and coaching. If you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, I will edit and coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words. When your review publishes and posts, send a screenshot of it to creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll start a dialogue. It's like a $100 value. So if I were you, I would totally do it. Also, shout out to Athletic Brewing. It's my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. If you visit athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money. Merely celebrating a great product. Skip the hangover, man. Skip it. I think it was the only thing that I ever really dreamed of doing was being a writer. Oh, hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. It's Black Friday, and this podcast is offered for free. What a deal. Hope you had a nice holiday and a satisfying meal. Me and the missus and the three dogs went to the Oregon coast with a bunch of vegan sammies, and we parked in our usual spot overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And watch the waves, man. We'll do something similar for Christmas. It's nice to know where people are. And then you go in the opposite direction. Wouldn't you know, it's another paperback podcast. This one was Susan Orlean. The first of her three trips to date on the podcast. This originally aired as episode 61. Really great stuff here. She talks about, from a young age, always being aware of an audience when she's writing, uh, the business nature of being a writer, and how she ended up at The New Yorker. Good stuff. She's the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including The Library Book, Rin Tin Tin, On Animals, and The Orchid Thief. She's been jamming on threads, and she's at Susan Orlean there. I think she might have deleted her ex. Uh, a lot of people have. Uh, but I see her on threads a lot, so I think that's where you can find her. That, Instagram. You know the deal. Head to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Subscribe to the podcast or not. It's up to you. Subscribe to that newsletter or don't. It's up to you. No parting shot this week, so we're just going to get right into it with... Susan Orlean's first rodeo on this podcast. Riff. I think that from a very young age, I was aware of the power of stories. Uh, I think it's probably because I loved to read and found books to be just magical. And I think if you love to read and you begin feeling the how powerful stories are, if you have any inclination to the idea of writing, it makes you feel like that is a, a very enticing path. When I was really young, I started writing little books and little, I would keep journals of my family's various trips and write them up in the form of a book. 
it's weird to me to say, to say this, but I think even as a little kid, I was aware of the idea of having a reader. I wasn't writing these stories just for myself. I was writing them with the idea that someone else would read them. Hmm. So I early on was thinking about publication. I say that partly jokingly, but in fact, I, I wrote up these stories of our trips as if they were little books and, you know, would staple them along the edge so that they looked like literally like they had been bound and loved the idea of them being actually, you know, read by someone else. So I, I think that it was something that I loved from a very young age and I think it was the only thing that I ever really dreamed of doing was being a writer. When I was probably an early teenager uh, or maybe younger than that, my family subscribed to Life magazine and Life really pioneered the sort of photo essay, the documentary kind of magazine piece. I remember reading one that was just the story of a small town doctor and it followed him through a day that included, you know, treat, helping somebody who had cancer and delivering a baby and, you know, this whole range of things. And I've never, I, I realized at the time that I had never seen a story like that that was just about normal life and trying to convey what a normal life was like. And it, it really stuck in my mind. And I think that was the point where I thought I want to be a writer and this is the kind of writer I want to be. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Cause so much of, of your work and what, uh, when, when people speak, uh, highly of your work, it's always how you know Ted Conover or Ira Glass talking about it. You know, fill in the blank. They're always so impressed and enamored that you've been able to take those those little micro moments that seem so benign and almost boring, but then making that ordinary extraordinary. And it really stemmed from that really that article in Life that you read at a young age. Yeah, and then I think it was further. Um kind of encouraged by the reading the New Yorker, which I began doing in college. And certainly they, they're probably, and they have been for uh, approaching a hundred years now, um, celebrate the idea of the story that takes a life that isn't uh, a, famous or prominent in the conventional sense of the words and examine examines that life for the sake of learning about what another life is like. And I just have, um, I love those stories when they're done well. I think they're amazing. And, and part of what's amazing is that it's, the idea that you could find an ordinary life amazing is almost makes it more interesting because it's such a great surprise. When you were 
when you were coming up and deciding that you wanted to take on writing as a, as a vocation and tell these these true stories, who might have been a uh, a mentor, professor, teacher, or just a a good ear who uh, put gas in the tank for you and said, "Yes, Susan, like keep keep going, like lean into this." I I was always really encouraged by. I had a, a series of wonderful English teachers when I was in high school who made me feel that I I had a, a, the right touch and encouraged me, not necessarily in a professional sense, but encouraged me to think of myself as a writer and that I was somebody who was capable of making something readable. So it was it was really exciting because they were they were great teachers. When I got to college, um I again I had great teachers, but at that point I began wondering well, I want to do this particular kind of writing which was not newspaper writing. And I went to the University of Michigan which had a really good student daily newspaper and had a giant staff of people who knew they wanted to work for newspapers. I knew that I didn't. So those years when I was in college, I, I kind of wondered how would I, how would I be able to do the kind of writing I wanted to do when the only professional track that I really felt I understood was newspapers, and that was something I didn't want to do. As I said, that was when I began reading The New Yorker. So in my head, I thought, well, that's what I want to do. But there isn't a really obvious path to going from being a college student to writing for The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and certainly, I didn't know what that path was. But I was really passionate about it. I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to go about getting there. Right out of college, I moved to Portland, uh, which was kind of a, a lucky thing. It was a, a move that I made without a lot of forethought. But it turned out that moving to what was then quite a small city under the radar is a really great place to move if you're trying to get started as a writer, because it was very inexpensive to live there. There was, just coincidentally, um, a very good alternative news weekly. And when I got there, there was a, a small magazine just starting up that couldn't afford to hire people with more experience than me, which was zero. <laughs> so... I went to my interview and just said, this is what I want to do. I know I don't have any experience, but I really, truly want to do this. You have to let me. And I must have been dramatic enough in my statement that I succeeded and was hired. And my first editor there and my editor's ever since, and certainly in those years in Portland, were tremendously influential and important to me. They really gave me 
the support to try doing the kinds of stories that I had in mind while also insisting that I learn the basics of reporting and the the underpinning of nonfiction writing. But primarily they they somehow had a feeling that I could do the kinds of things I was talking to them about, which are not necessarily the stories you assign to a young, inexperienced writer. But I guess I was so passionate about it that they figured it was worth the taking the chance. Yeah, they. it sounds like they... Maybe though you maybe didn't have the requisite skills of a reporter, you you at least had the nose for narrative, and they were like, "We can teach you these things, but you've got this other thing." Like your teacher was saying, you had the right touch. So maybe they're like, "You've got the right touch, but we'll teach you how to be a reporter, but you just keep using your taste, and that will help guide you." Exactly, and a sense of an instinct for story, but also just a a real um i was really excited about the kinds of stories i wanted to tell and i think they knew that and appreciated it and felt that it wasn't that i was purposeful that i i really truly felt compelled to tell these stories and they encouraged me to do it that's really important it's also important for an editor to know who can take on those stories and who can't because they're not easy in fact they're very difficult stories and there were times when I really had moments of thinking "Uh, these are really hard stories to do and I, I don't know quite why I'm doing them but I stuck with it and the more experience I got certainly the the more comfortable I was taking on these these stories that are, I, I don't want to disparage them by saying they're non-stories. They're not non-stories, but they are stories that rely heavily on the conviction of the writer that there is a story to tell when it maybe isn't as obvious to other people. Have you run into situations where no matter how much time or how much reporting you put in, you're just like, uh, I got to bail. I got to bail on this and move on to something else. Or do you just keep keep ramming, ramming ahead? I've certainly had stories that midway I began really worrying about and stories that I had to, I had to recalibrate once I was in the middle of the story and began seeing what was possible and what wasn't. There haven't been that many that I've just dropped outright, usually because I've spent a lot of time mulling them over before I dive in. So there, there are more stories that I've abandoned before I began and because I just lost faith in the story. I've had many, many stories, if not all the stories I've written that at some point changed and they weren't the the story I thought they were. I actually consider that a good sign. If a story is just exactly what I expected it would be, I don't think of that as being all that interesting. I 
I'd prefer a story that revealed itself to me in a surprising way as I was carrying on the reporting. It can sometimes mean, though, that you have to stop and think, whoa, hang on, this was not what I was expecting. Or a particular source I was imagining would be available is not, is refusing to talk to me. So now what? What does that mean? Sometimes I've been on the very brink of bailing, and I've had an editor who said, no, don't give up, hang in there, keep going, you know, see see what's there and what you can make out of it. And that's that's been wonderful. That's when I've been really fortunate that I've had editors who just encourage me beyond that doubt that comes up inevitably. Is there a, an example of of when that happened that you can recall? Um, sure. I was I had heard this story about a woman in New Jersey who had was keeping 27 pet tigers at her home. And there was a of course a bit of a legal backlash and she was in the middle of some proceedings to get the tigers taken away and it was you know obviously the kind of story that you think oh my god I've got to write about this I expected that she would talk to me I assumed she would talk to me because I figured she'd want to plead her case in the in the press and it felt really important to me to talk to her and get her story of how or why she had these tigers when I began the reporting uh, and I met her, she just shut me down flat and said, nope, she wasn't, would not talk to me, wasn't interested in talking to me. My first thought was to give up on the story. I just didn't see how I could write the story without her. And this was a piece for The New Yorker. My editor said, well, hang on a minute. It's a great story. See if you can think of, of how to approach it if she's not going to talk to you. And I had been very discouraged. I basically felt like it was impossible to do. But he really encouraged me to stick with it. So I thought, all right, I have to be a little more resourceful and figure out how can I tell this story without her talking to me. And also, how can I make, take that as an asset rather than a liability? How can I look at her refusal to talk to me as, as relevant to the story? And of course it was, she felt really beleaguered. She felt the press was against her. Um, she was quite paranoid. And frankly, it's not that I'm glad she didn't talk to me, but the fact that she didn't talk to me made sense the more I came to know about her. And I, I basically had to gather her story from court records, from people around her, from you know any other sources that I could. It ended up being, I think, a really successful story. And the fact that she never spoke to me, I wouldn't say it was a better outcome, but it it was 
an outcome that felt actually logical, given who she was and her state of mind. It, it was a great exercise in hanging and, you know, stopping and rethinking. What was I expecting? What what can I do with the the tools that I've been given as opposed to the tools I was expecting? That's a that's a killer example. It's like if you if you want to write a profile about the sun, you, you're you're better off in interviewing all the planets around orbiting it. And uh, not getting too close to that central figure, and you actually find that you probably was a lot more enlightening and 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 surprised you in a lot of ways, and turned out to be a better story in the end. I certainly think that it was a successful story. I hmm. it would have been a different story if she had talked to me. So I I I feel like anytime someone doesn't talk to you and you have to work around it, you, you're using your ingenuity to create a story in spite of missing a certain puzzle piece. I was really happy with how it turned out. It, it would have certainly been interesting to talk to her. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say it, it turned out really well. And I don't feel you read it thinking, well, wait, how about let's hear from from her, there was a, a a period of time where I saw a lot of stories published, which were all about the failure to talk to the central subject of the story, and that's not the way that I would approach it. Where I mean, there was a famous story. I think it was a cover story in Esquire that was supposed to be a profile of John Lennon, and he declined to talk to the reporter. So the story was all about trying to talk to John Lennon. And I think you can overdo that approach right. uh, about your failure as a reporter. This story, luckily, was it was not, it wasn't a profile of her. It was a story about the situation that was certainly about her and about how she'd ended up having these tigers and why she had them and how it was that the state of New Jersey had failed to monitor this over the years. So it wasn't a profile. The, the, the absence of a one-to-one -one conversation with her was, you know, I could compensate in so many ways. So when you when you got to got to Portland and you're starting to uh, you're starting to develop your chops and you knew ultimately that you wanted to be writing for the New Yorker or writing the types of stories that typically are published in the in the New Yorker that style of narrative what were what were the strategies that you were putting in place knowing that you saw the lighthouse off in the distance like how how were you saying all right what am i doing today that's ultimately feeding into that end goal did you have a playbook? When I was in Portland, you mean? Yeah, I guess that was, you know, that being your first step towards, you know, out of college, going to Portland and starting to write those kinds of stories, you know, and you knew where you wanted to go. Um, how did, how were you starting to strategize ultimately getting to The New Yorker? This is a story almost told better backwards because some of the things I did – 
leading to it were they weren't carefully thought out as much as they were kind of instinct and a sort of gut sense of how to advance myself um, rather than having a, a game plan. I think I knew all along that I needed to start having stories published elsewhere besides just in the Portland papers. And I knew that I needed to begin making connections with editors elsewhere that would, you know, give me assignments and assignments that could build my resume. So it it was nothing where I sat down and thought, all right, I've really got to start figuring out how to meet people as much as it felt like this natural sense of advancement. I look back and realize that I had a, a gut. Somehow I, I had the wisdom of an entrepreneur. Maybe I won't say wisdom because it sort of gives me too much credit, but I had the instincts of an entrepreneur. I, I sensed how it just, these were natural moves that you'd make if you were in a relatively small city writing stories, but picturing advancing and writing for magazines in New York, it, it meant reaching out, introducing myself to people, um, make thinking about stories that were taking place in Portland, but might have a national audience. Then there were certain things that were just lucky breaks. Um, I, in my second or third year in Portland, I got a phone call from someone who had been, who had grown up in Portland and had written a little bit for the paper I was working for at the time, who had, he's an incredible writer and he had moved on in his career and was a staff writer at Rolling Stone. He called me and said, I've been reading your stuff and I think you should write for Rolling Stone. This was like a bolt out of the blue hmm. and it was incredibly lucky and a, a bit of serendipity because had he not grown up in Portland, he certainly wouldn't have been looking at this local alternative news weekly, but it, it just so happened that he was. He liked my stuff and basically threw the door open for me. So out of the blue, I went from writing for a local alternative news weekly to publishing in Rolling Stone. And that was, that was so valuable. That was so useful to me to begin having stories that were published in national magazines and making me feel like, okay, this is how you do it. You make a connection, you meet an editor, you think of stories that would work for a bigger audience. I introduced myself to the editor of the village voice who happened to be in Portland for a, a conference and 
she liked me. I said, could I write something for you? And at the time, The Village Voice was a very well-respected, well-read publication that had a, a very much a national audience. Then it was a matter of thinking, what are the stories in Portland that the village voice might be interested in. And I got lucky because there were a couple of stories unfolding in Portland that struck me as being interesting to a bigger audience and village voice assigned them to me. And I was off and running. I really like what you're alluding to here. Cause there's that entrepreneurial nature of what it takes to be you know, a, a writer who wants uh, her work visible and reach those upper levels where you can continue to do this stuff, possibly and hopefully make a living. And there is a there is that a degree of tenacity and rigor that goes into the the pie chart of how you how a writer divides up his or her time. And it's not just write and then hope to get lucky. There's all these elements of you know, just meeting the right person, networking without being spammy or schmoozy and in, in, in those off-putting ways. And I, I was wondering, maybe you can like speak to that extra, that what that tenacity and rigor looks like. That's every bit the component of becoming a writer of this kind of narrative journalism that everyone needs, but maybe doesn't necessarily want to admit that they need. I think it's so important. First of all, in very practical terms, if you're going to be a, uh, a person doing long-form journalism, you will be running a small business. You may end up with a staff job somewhere, but in my guess is percentage-wise, people doing narrative nonfiction generally work freelance, it's, and that will be increasingly true. I'm sure, but it's certainly, I, I'd be stunned if I were wrong on those numbers. Therefore, you have to, you know, look at it as, as a business that you're running and you also happen to be the raw material that the business is <laughs> producing. You're, you, you can both be an artist, but you also have to be a good business person. And that means thinking through how do I make myself useful to editors, to publications? How can I get to do the things I want to do? I've always thought I'm an entrepreneur in order to enable myself to do the most original work I can do. I've never felt that being good at business compromised my the art of my writing it's kind of the opposite it's that i want to be a really good business person so that i can get myself in a position to do exactly what i want to do with my writing and that just means figuring it out i'm not sure that i've got all the the tips of the trade i do think that you've got to think you know, if you think you're just going to sit and write your beautiful work and someone's going to discover you, I think you're probably wrong. It would be <laughs> dreamy and wonderful, but it doesn't make sense. Also, I have to say, I think 
if you're not a little bit bold and a little bit uh, enterprising, I would be surprised if you were that good of a reporter. It seems to me that being smart about the the way you function as a business is very much the same kind of instincts that would make you good at reporting. How do you get things done? How do you approach people? How do you gain trust? How do you remain kind of organized so that you figure out how to solve a puzzle? Well, that phrase, that set of phrases that I just said could apply both to advancing your career or writing a story. They're the same thing. If you think about it, how do I find, how do I make contact with a, an editor at the New Yorker? Well, if you were writing a story about someone, how would you contact them? How would you introduce yourself? How would you gain their trust? It's, it's really the same thing. So, you know, not everybody is as bold and outgoing and I, I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word aggressive because that sounds obnoxious, but there are people who report by being quieter and more subtle and low key, but they also figure it out. They, they figure out how to approach people. It may not be, you know, making the cold call and just showing up on a doorstep. It may be figuring out who they know, who knows someone who knows someone who can make an introduction. So I, I think that being a writer means the same things as approaching the business of being a writer. You use those same tools and, and those same, uh, that same sense of enterprise. Like, I really want to meet someone at The New Yorker. Yeah, some of it comes through luck, but all right, if it's not going to happen through luck, how can you make luck? How can you figure that out? And that to me is really important. It's it's a very it's a great skill for a writer and it's an essential skill if you want to make a living as a writer. It, it seems like if you had a three-circled Venn diagram, it would be like supreme focus, ambition along with patience. And if you're able to sort of get to that sweet spot, you know, you you might you should be able to to crack into where you want to crack in too. But you know, some some people want it instantly. Others, you know, you might have to work your slowly work your way up a sort of chain of command. But you do have to cultivate a sense of patience, but also with that singular focus in mind. Uh, I I agree, and I think you need to know what it is that you want. And, you know, I look at a lot of things that have happened to me professionally uh, that have been incredibly fortunate. I mean, that call from Rolling Stone, for instance, and a few chance encounters that turned out to be really valuable. But then I think, well, let me think a second here. Is it, is it truly like a meteorite fell on my head or is it that? I got in a position to make lucky things 
possible. I would say that that's more true. Uh, I mean, I've had a lot of great fortune, but, but I was I positioned myself for the good fortune to happen. Also, I I took advantage of it, and I mean, for instance, I I was just uh, recently in residence at a uh, workshop for narrative nonfiction. There were eight writers there. I was there more as a as a visitor, and people wrote really terrific pieces. Interestingly, only one of them approached me and said, ask me in a very polite and not obnoxious way if there were any way that I could recommend for her to approach The New Yorker. Now, there are many people who not everybody there necessarily would have to have The New Yorker as their ultimate goal. Some people might have just thought, oh, that's really rude and I'm not going to do it. It wasn't, it, you know, this woman approached me. It wasn't rude at all. And it, it was sensible. She has a chance to say, listen, I, you've heard part of my piece. Would you be willing, if this isn't an imposition, to help me approach the New Yorker? And frankly, I thought, good for her. I mean, this is a this is an opportunity and she's taking advantage of it. And I could have said, no, sorry, I don't do that. Instead, I said, send me your piece and let me take a look at it. This is not by way of saying, I want everyone in the world to send me their piece. It's, it's a, it's a way of saying that I really respected her for taking the initiative and thinking, look, this is a chance and maybe I'll get shut down, but I should try it. And for all I know, I mean, she just sent the piece to me. I may not like it, or I may say, hey, this is terrific. Let me introduce you to my editor. So that's the way it works. That's the kind of business it is. It it relies on personal connection and, and merit. I think you, if the piece isn't good, it doesn't matter that she is enterprising if the piece is good and she was enterprising and approached me bingo yeah you had said something in um when in a creative nonfiction interview with lee gookin uh, that you're astonished by a lack of ambition and and savvy about going about cultivating a, a writing career and that what that woman illustrated by coming up to you is a little bit of that. I mean, th- what was the worst thing you could have said was like, was no, but at least she took that shot. And that's, right. that's some right. of that am- ambition and a little savvy. I mean, she was probably thinking, all right, you know, I'm going to approach her with some tact, but you know, if this goes well, wow, I, I, I might have a, a, right. a big foot in the door. Right. And you know, you're right. The worst thing that could have happened is I could have said, that's really rude, um, you know, no. But I I can't imagine, to be honest, I can't imagine that anybody in my position would be offended or shocked or, you know. I mean, I was there, it was a writing workshop. It, it's not like she approached me uh, while I was sitting and having a beer in a, 
on vacation with my family mm-hmm. and stuck her story under my nose. It was completely appropriate to the moment. And the worst thing would have been for me to say, hey, look, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable funneling things to the magazine. So what's, what's the harm in that? I mean, she was incredibly polite and uh, it was absolutely appropriate to ask. And certainly if she worried that everyone there had come and done the same thing, well, even so, like, I'm, I'm a grown up, and if I was offended or annoyed by it, I, I would have been able to handle it. And I would have just said, hey, sorry, everybody's asked me, and I just can't do it. So you, you have to, of course, be respectful and tactful and appreciative of, you know, not putting people on the spot. But certainly, I mean, I'm not an editor. If someone is an editor, you, should go on the assumption that they are always looking for good writers mm-hmm. and that you're not that, you know, that's part of their job um, is to look for writers and good writing. So, I, I mean, with me, it's a little bit different because that's not really what I do, but it makes perfect sense. Hmm. And you know, if I see some work that I think is great, I'd love to pass it along to the magazine. When I, when I was speaking with uh, Bronwyn Dickey, who wrote the great book Pitbull, uh, Battle of American Icon, I told her I was going to be speaking with you. I was like, oh, what? Because she had brought you up when she was um, talking about, I was asking her about research and when she knew she was done because she did so much research, you know, something you're very familiar with. And she said, yeah. Well, yeah, and she was, she's like, oh, I, I she's like, I take the, I take the tact of what what Susan Orlean says when I know I knew when I was done when I saw myself coming the other way. How would oh, you? That's inspiring to hear that that uh, that she um, had registered that notion <laughs> from me because it's uh, it's a weird thing and people ask it all the time because the fact is that in a way you're never done. I mean, no, there's no moment at which you've perfected every bit of reporting. So there has to be some way of thinking I'm, I've got enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she, she wanted me to extend, extend to she loved. She said, like, I, I love hearing stories about things that did not go well. You know, stories killed, abandoned subjects, jerk sources, big mistakes, hard lessons. <laughs> And uh, I wonder, I would extend that to you. Like, what were some of those things and stories that you were reporting that didn't go well? Those stories killed abandoned subjects, you know, just dealing with jerks and and the lessons that you've learned over the course of your reporting and your career. It is uh, just the nature of the beast that uh, this is a very um, kind of ramshackle profession that is held together with spit and glue and band-aids occasionally, there are always going to be moments where stories feel like they're on the brink of falling apart or people are difficult or they won't speak to you or you simply can't figure your way out of a, a problem with the piece 
it's balance. The, those things are exactly what they are. They're unpleasant and disappointing and discouraging. And they, they don't go away. They're just balanced by the mirror opposite, the, the person who you call with dread, assuming that they're not going to talk to you or, or be hostile. And instead, they're just happy to talk and are far more open than you imagined and funny and articulate stories that bloom because there's just so much more than you even imagined that you discover that the story is, is really multidimensional and complex and fascinating. Um, you just have to keep rolling with it. And I haven't had that many people that I've interviewed who were jerks. It's, I've had more of the experience later of, of people being critical of a piece that I'd done and having to just take a deep breath and figure, well, that's just, that's the nature of being a writer. Uh, not everybody's going to love everything. <laughs> um, I have, as I said, I've, I've had a lot of story ideas that were half baked and then I just abandoned them, um, out of, uh, a sort of feeling that they were not going to be quite what I had hoped. Usually that's something where it either happens in my head or I do the initial phone call and hang up and just think, uh, I, I can look down the road a month from now and feel like I'll be really unhappy doing this story. So <laughs> get out now. <laughs> <laughs> It, I, I remember uh, a few years ago, it was uh, the Power of Narrative Conference in, in Boston and uh, at BU, and uh, you gave, uh, gave a nice, uh, wonderful keynote or speech, and then and, uh, it was after a session where things got like pretty grim and bleak. Like It was you know, a lot of working reporters and writers out there you know, just grinding, and everyone, the, the attitude and tone of the room was like... It was like I said, it was kind of grim, and um, you were tasked. I think then we broke for lunch or something, and then you came back, and I think you were tasked with picking everybody up. And I don't know if you re recall <laughs> that, but all, but if you recall that, like, what was what was your mission when you came back to remind people why they were there? I I don't remember exactly the exchange, but this was uh, the conference. If I remember correctly, it was took place at a really dark moment in the um, journalism world, where papers were closing left and right, and magazines were shedding staff, and it just felt like free fall. Um, I always think about the most telling sign of that period was that there was a Twitter account called the media is dying and every day just posted statistics on what newspaper had laid off how many people. And it was awful. Um, you know, I wasn't employed in a way where I would be laid off because I didn't, I don't have a job in those terms. 
But, you know, publishers were merging and book contracts were being canceled. It was terrible. And there's no, there's no way around it. There's been a, a contraction in the business of publishing that it's been at the same time easier than ever to get published, harder than ever to get paid for it. There are going to be a certain number of people who, in a, a, a more robust moment in the journalism world, might have a staff job somewhere or might have a successful freelance career that will no longer be doing it. That will, they will have left to do something else, um, marketing or PR or some, or, or go back to school and become a, a, uh, anesthesiologist, whatever, um, <laughs> that, you know, there, again, I don't have numbers for this, but my guess is that there are far fewer people who have staff jobs at newspapers, um, or magazines now. So it's a grim thing, but number one, if you've hung in there, I think it's important to take a deep breath and um, turn your attention away a little bit from, I mean, first of all, I think we, we've seen that level out. I think the worst of it has passed and it's kind of been a big shakeout, but if you're choosing to stay in this line of work and if you're lucky enough to be making a living at doing it, you, you really have to, I, I think you need to not dwell on that grimness. And I don't think it's, I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't think just writing a great story is enough and you'll be found, you know, a laser beam will seek you out and you'll be given lots of money but books are still being published, magazines are still being published, newspapers are still being published. There, there is still a, a, a desire for stories and a willingness, maybe not as much as we'd like, but there is still a willingness to pay for those good stories. And it's maybe more than ever something that you're very fortunate to do if you do it for your living. It's a, it's a kind of wonderful thing to be able to decide you want to learn about something and then write about it and see it published. I do not discount the fact that it is not easy to figure out how to make this work financially. I, you know, I think I used to think, well, if you're good, it'll work. You'll, it'll just fall into place for you. I think it's a little harder now, but this is the world we live in. So you just have to kind of dive in and think, all right, I've got to make this work and figure it out. And because I love what I do. And it's important to me to do it. And I feel, I feel like I should do this and I need to do it. 
when you're in writer mode, whether it's book or a long magazine story, what does your routine typically look like as you're approaching the work itself? It's, it really depends on whether I'm in the reporting or the writing phase. Um, it's like living two totally different lives. Uh, when I begin a new piece or a new book, um, I feel like a little bit like I've been blindfolded and dropped into a foreign territory with no map, and I have to use my best Girl Scout skills to figure out, okay, where am I? What am I? Who knows? Who can I talk to who can tell me where I am? Where do I find the roadmap? What am I looking for? I mean, what is this? Um, So my typical day can involve going to a library, making phone calls. It's, It's sort of all over the place just uh, in the beginning. And then as I begin to know a little bit more, I tend to have tasks that I assign myself as I begin knowing what I'm trying to figure out. Um, so the days are can be, uh, you know, a lot of time out, depending on, uh, you know, where the material is that I'm looking for. When it comes to writing... It's a completely solitary undertaking. I do a lot of, I, I take notes by hand. So I, there's a long stretch of time where I'm typing notes uh, and then reviewing the type notes and correcting or, or rather highlighting the things that I begin to see as being important. Um, so there's lots of paper shuffling and moving material around and looking at it and reading it again. And I, I do all my reporting before I do my writing. So it's the first time that I'll be sitting down and actually starting to put my fingers on my keyboard. And what part of that process do you feel most alive and most engaged? Wow, that's a good question. There, um, it's so different because when I'm reporting, there are lots of times when I feel just totally lost. I don't know what I'm looking for. So there's, there's a, 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 it's a strange feeling. It's almost like rummaging through a refrigerator when you're hungry, but you don't really know what you feel like eating. Mm-hmm. And it's a like there's lots of stuff there, but you. You're just not really sure what you're even looking for. Um, So it can be very stimulating and, you know, kind of like a survival game. It can also be a little bit numbing. I mean, there are times where I wake up and think I I don't even really know what I should be doing today to try to advance this story. But it also can be incredibly fun when you find archives or you call people who are relevant to the story or I'm traveling to the place that I'm writing about. You know, it's 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 really thrilling. Um, writing can have its thrilling moments, too. If I'm in a groove and things are rolling easily off my tongue, I'm I'm 
really excited. It's a fantastic feeling. And with with regards to your work and the where where you are in your career, like what still what still excites you and brings you back to the notebook and then back to the computer to then shape something uh, from all that information gathering? Like what still what still resonates with you and what keeps you going and hungry? Each story to me is a whole new challenge. And the idea that having done lots of stories or written a number of books makes it less of a challenge is, is just inact. It's just not true. Um, if I wrote about the same subject repeatedly, maybe that would be different, but each story starts me off from zero and the, the process of sort of clawing my way from zero to something is it, it never stops being exciting. I I think that the, the sheer experience of learning something new is remains just as exciting to me now as it did the day I began. I'm no longer as, I don't have as many specific, like uh, professional goals. I'm not writing now thinking this will be helpful for me to, get a job at place X. Um, so these don't feel like resume builders. And I don't think I ever wrote anything as a resume builder, but I was certainly, uh, at earlier points in my career, it, it felt like I was aiming toward some acknowledgements that, have mostly come like working at the New Yorker or having books that got good reviews or sold well, you know, the, those kind of goals, while each new piece is its own challenge and you hope that people will care about it and like it. And, and frankly, every book is its own challenge because you think, well, just because I sold lots of copies of my, of this other book doesn't mean this one's going to be successful. So each book you're starting from zero for sure. Um, and in fact, sometimes you're starting from less than zero because you have your own track record to be competing with. Um, do I have career ambitions specifically that I haven't, uh, achieved or that I think about, um, not, not so much. I mean, not, not that I, not that I can think of, um, because I, I feel really, you know, I love writing for the New Yorker and there's no place that I'd rather write for. So I don't fantasize about, you know, being plucked by, some other publication. Um, It's just wanting each piece or each book to be as good as it can be. And that's a huge challenge. 
And I'd be remiss if I didn't a- ask you this. Then I'll let you get out of here since you've been so uh, so generous with your time, and I really deeply appreciate that. Is uh, oh, my pleasure. Great. Um, so, what was that moment like when you did get that first assignment from the New Yorker? Sort of like a goal and a dream realized. And what changed, and maybe what didn't change too. I would have to say it was probably the single most exciting moment of my work life ever. Um, You know, even more than seeing, well, I would say seeing my first book was pretty thrilling, but getting that first assignment from the New Yorker, seeing it set in the New Yorker typeface and getting my galleys, I just, I I couldn't believe it. It it was really, it was just an enormously exciting. I I mean I I just couldn't believe it. It felt that astonishing to me. And frankly, it it still is absolutely thrilling. I I still feel a kind of pinch me moment each time I have a story in the magazine. It doesn't. I mean, it'll, it'll never be the, I mean, I was literally like fainting with excitement when I had my first talk of the town piece. And when I had my first byline, because when I wrote talk of the town in the beginning, it was when there were no bylines on talk, but still it didn't matter. I I didn't even care. Mm. It was just seeing something I had written in the magazine was astonishing (laughs) Um, and I'm still amazed and excited about it. It, it is, it hasn't changed. I still consider it, um, just one of the most gratifying, absolutely marvelous things that I could ever have imagined for myself and, and for which I'm enormously grateful and feel like the thrill will never go away. Wow. Well, Susan, like I said, thank you. Thank you so much for carving the time out to speak with me. This has been a thrill to get to have a thrill and a privilege to be able to have this, have this time with you and to talk shop. So like, thanks, thanks again for doing this. And um, like I said, it was a thrill. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a, I really enjoyed it so much. I'm so glad we were able to do it. And I, I like talking shop. It's, a, it's actually a real pleasure for me. And especially because we all work in these little uh, individual silos. And it, there's a good feeling of saying, you know, the, what's this like, this crazy thing we're all doing? And do you have any tips that I can use and any tips I can give you that I've found useful? There's something very, uh, it's a, it's my communitarian spirit, I guess. I just like feeling that this is a shared experience, even though it is very individual. Uh, yeah, I've had a smile on my face this entire hour we've been talking and I, I suspect everyone else listening will, will feel similarly. So this is this has been wonderful, and your communitarian uh, uh, gift to to everyone will will be will be felt for sure. 